Well, that said, let's open our Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. In 2023, we have thematically, by the Holy Spirit's leading and aid, uh, determined that the book or the theme of the book of Genesis is sin destroys, but God delivers. And so in 2023, that is our theme as a church. Sin destroys, God delivers. And as we've been investigating uh, through a sweeping look at the book of Genesis, we did three introductory messages in Genesis. Those are all available online for you now, as well as bulletins published with information. Um, that we noted that in four ways we break down the book of Genesis, we can see God's clear, loving, gracious deliverance. And friends, God delivers today as he did then. And the book of Genesis is foundational to our understanding uh, of the gospel. The book of Genesis is, our, is foundational to our understanding of everything in Christian theology and our Christian walk. And so some have asked me, Pastor, how many messages are you planning to preach through Genesis? Well, right now, Pastor Stephen and I have mapped out 56 messages. Um, so it'll it'll take us into a little bit next year. We may condense that. And hopefully we can, maybe we finish it this year. Um, that's not many messages considering the content of Genesis, but we are spending a a, a decent amount of time. It'll be three messages in chapter one. And so for some of you, wow, last week, Pastor, you preached, or, or two weeks ago, you preached a message on two verses in chapter one. Are we going to go that slow? And the answer is no. Today, we're going to do a two-part, uh, first installment of a two-part message. We're going to deal with chapter one, verses uh, three to 13. So we're just going to deal with 10 verses today. Next week, verses 14 to 31, and then we're going to pick up the pace a bit following those Toledoth installments. There are five in the first 11 chapters, five and 12 to 50, and then, of course, we'll be filling in the gaps um, with some of the patriarchal discussion and the biographical information that God has for us. Listen, we live in a generation of experience, right? In fact, in our postmodern, post-progressive society, experience trumps all. And so the beauty of 70% of the Bible is that it is written about other people's experience from God's perspective. 70% of the Bible is narrative, it's story, and God, the divine narrator, tells the story and speaks into the life of his people. And so as we look at Genesis, remembering God is the narrator and God has a special message for us today. What we'll discover in verses 3 to 13, as we think about the theme, sin destroys, God delivers, is we're going to see that God forms and fills his perfect creation. That's really the focus of these 10 verses, God forming and filling his perfect creation. But the overarching theme of God forming and filling his creation in these 10 verses is this, God sovereignly rules over all of his creation. And because God's sovereign and God rules over his creation, you and I are accountable to him. So as we think about this wonderful theme, God's sovereign rule over creation, uh, and we meditate on that thought today, let's ask a question of the text as we think about it. The question we want to ask today is this. How does the narrative of Genesis 1 reveal God's rule over creation and thus our accountability to him? So how many of you, uh, don't raise your hands, how many of you are a child of somebody? <laughs> yes, that was a trick question. <laughs> uh, you have been in a household where somebody rules. Some of us have had households that uh, the rule is by fiat, sadly. Some have had households where the rule is by absentia, letting children just do whatever they want. Some have had godly homes where moms and dads have, by, their, by, by God's grace, they've strived to obey God and love their kids like God does. But all of us understand what it means to be in a world under authority. Yet so many of us, because of a sin curse that we'll read about later in the narrative in chapter 3 and the curse that follows, we find ourselves in a broken world. Yes, that world has been broken by sin, 
the fall and the curse. And yet God in the very beginning, we're going to see here today, has designed a world that showcases his sovereign rule and our accountability. And as we press this morning toward that reality, I want to inform us of our accountability to God so that we can learn to trust him in our daily deliverance. In fact, last week we noted that because God cares for his creation, we can trust him for our daily deliverance. We saw that in verses one and two. We saw that displayed through the verses of history, through God in the beginning, his creation of the universe, and finally his creation of the earth. But today, as we dig deeper into the masterfully written Hebrew prose that we see before us, we will see God's sovereign control over creation, which showcases our accountability to him. In fact, the text at hand reveals this by describing God's forming the earth and God's filling the earth. Now, I'm going to be the first to tell you this morning that we're only going to deal with the first of those two facts, because Genesis 1, 3 to 31 discusses form and filling. Today, we're going to deal with God's forming the earth. And because God sovereignly formed the earth and he sovereignly rules, then you and I are accountable to him. And I promise there's going to be some application in this process this morning. So as I mentioned last week, what we noted was that because God cares for his creation, we can trust him for our deliverance. We saw that truth displayed in the first two verses. We're going to see today um, that God uh, not only cares for his creation, but he rules his creation. Look with me, if you will, at the text, and let's let the text speak for itself this morning. Um, and if this will probably be the most important thing I say all day, because it's just directly from the word of God. So as we listen to the word of God, let's ask the Holy Spirit of God to take the word of God to transform our hearts to be more like the son of God. And so let's look at the text. I'm going to read verses 3 to 13, and then we're going to exegete and dive into the text. As we dig deeper into this masterfully written Hebrew prose, as I mentioned, we're going to see God's sovereign control over creation, which will showcase our need to be accountable to him. And so as we see this in the forming of the earth and the filling of the earth here in verse 3, and let's read together. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, so the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the, ga and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Verse 11, then God said, let the earth bring forth grass the herb that yields seed and the fruit the tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. May God add a blessing to the reading of the portion of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that you would help this feeble man with feeble voice and breath to speak clearly and powerfully the truths of your word, that you would draw our attention to the hope that we have in God, our sovereign ruler, and the accountability that we have to him for our daily lives so that we can have and live every day with a breath of dependence upon him so that we can accomplish your will in our lives as a church. And we understand and reckon and recall the truth that God has conquered sin and death through his son. And thus we are accountable to him to live according to his word and will by being disciples, making disciples. Father, fill us with your spirit. Help us to understand your truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So today we're going to see God's rule over creation and our accountability to him showcased in this text. So let's take a look, first of all, uh, how it's showcased uh, first through God's work in forming the earth. And we're going to discover because God rules his creation, we are accountable to him. And I want you to think about your accountability and my accountability as we walk through the text and what that means. As you and I have grown up in homes under accountability, we must understand and recognize that that accountability doesn't dissipate or disappear just because the accountable one is unseen. Uh, you all remember the time probably as a kid when mom and dad left for some reason and uh, left you over uh, your own self and left you in charge. And uh, yet there was a reckoning when they returned. And some of you have happy memories of that reckoning and some of you don't. And, uh, and the reality is friends, there will be a reckoning as God is always observing, but God's plan is to never leave or forsake us. And we're gonna talk about that as we walk through this. So as we take a look at this first uh, showcased God's work in forming the earth, um, this is what we're gonna see here in verses three to 13. God's work in forming the earth. Now, I want to, it's my job to do the deep dive spade work throughout the week and then pull out the truths then to give to you that we're going to apply um, in each and every one of these sub points. So I only have one point today, God's work in forming the earth. Point number two is part two. That'll be next Sunday. But this, this one point has four sub points. Um, and as we look at it this morning, um, I trust that you will track with me um, I don't have a ton of work. Technically, I have three subpoints and some concluding application. Um, I, I deleted the fourth subpoint this morning just to make it a little easier to follow. So here is the, here is the way we're going to break this down. First and foremost, you heard me read verses 3 to 13. You heard the theme, God's sovereign rule over his creation. You've heard the pointed truth, because God sovereignly rules over his creation, we are accountable to him. Now let's step back and let's look at the way God in his mastery of the Hebrew language put in prose this historical narrative right in plain sight for us to see God's sovereign care and control even in the way he delivered this message to Moses. Now remember, we're taking the, re the real truth that God gave this to Moses. Moses wrote this down during the wilderness wandering, probably at the beginning of the wilderness wandering during that first generation as they're dying off in the wilderness. This is somewhere around 1446 to 1440 BC as Moses is writing down God's historical account of the beginning. He is just absolutely decimating every false ideology. They've come out of Egypt and God in the, through the 10 plagues has wiped out every single one of their gods. The Lord of the flies, the Lord of the Nile, uh, the crocodile, the sun God, the moon God, uh, the God of the, the firstborn, right? Uh, he's completely wiped out every Egyptian deity and he has declared himself to be Yahweh, God of gods. And this Yahweh is now guiding the children of Israel by day with a pillar of fire and by or by day with a pillar of smoke and by night by a pillar of fire. And as they're walking and wandering through the wilderness, God is instructing them through Moses. Yet he's taking the time to give them this beautiful picture of how God in the beginning created everything out of nothing. Now, I'm not going to waste your time with the six views on this creation narrative. Um, I am just simply going to stay, state the fact that I believe based on the way this is formed, evening and morning, day one, evening and morning, day two, evening and morning, day three, and the same author who wrote Exodus 20, which is a clear-cut, uh, non-prose, non-poetic section of the same Pentateuch, the second book of the Pentateuch, uses the same word, yom, day, to mean a 24-hour period. So I believe that this text is discussing in six 24-hour periods, God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. And on the seventh day, God rested. And by the way, he's still resting. Now, there will be a day where God reworks. Peter says it this way, the elements will melt with a fervent heat. And God says in Revelation through John and his inspired writings, 
that he will create a new heaven and a new earth and there will be a new Jerusalem and the parallels between Genesis and Revelation are not, they're not easy to miss. They're very clear, okay? The, the, the Eden that God creates, we'll talk about in two weeks, the Eden that God creates, God recreates in the new Jerusalem with his very presence. The rivers that flow out of Eden mirror the river that flows from the throne of God the tree of life that was hidden and barred by the cherubim is now open and growing by the river of life in the new Jerusalem for all of us to partake of. See, friends, God has a sovereign rule over his creation and the chief of his creation, that's us, we are accountable to him. And so uh, without you know, intellectually diving in and trying to tickle the fancy intellect of some folks who would like to deny us a 24-hour, six-day literal creation. Let's just take it as what I think it is face value, evening and morning, day one, evening and morning, day two. Not large gaps, uh, not special days that God made just for this purpose. Um, this is tr truly a clear, as clear as can be in Hebrew prose, and beautifully laid out God's work in forming the earth showcases his sovereignty. So let's take a look then at the first way God's work in forming the earth showcases his sovereignty that leads to our accountability. Okay, here's the first way in our first subpoint: Narrative symmetry displays God's sovereignty. And you understand what I mean here? Narrative means story. So the true story that God delivers has a pattern that is symmetric. We get that, right? Um, for those of you who are into the trades, um, I had a contractor's license. I, I uh, only to do drywall repair and minor carpentry here and there, but I can tell you this, I'll never forget the first day my boss, who was, I was working for a painter at the time, he said, hey, Ryan, I want you to, to remove this rotted door casing and this door, and I want you to put a new door frame on. That took me four and a half hours because I had no idea what I was doing. And I hung that door frame and the door sat in the, in the door frame cattywampus. And it was like whacking the top of the door. And then I was like, what did I do wrong? And I, oh, it was awful. But I can tell you this, I learned really, really well how important it was to have a level door jam and a level door casing. And, uh, and the truth of the matter is God in his divine authority and power has shown level or symmetric truth to us. And it's right there. It's right here in the text. But I want you to see it, okay? So the narrative symmetry displays God's sovereignty and thus it showcases our accountability to him. So as we look at this narrative symmetry, what we're going to see is uh, God's description of creation reveals perfect symmetry in both the narrative arrangement and the creation itself. The first three days highlight God's forming the earth, while the last three showcase its filling. Now, I didn't even read the last three. That's verses 14 to 31, okay? We're going to get to that next week, but I, I am going to overview it and showcase it to you right now. The purpose then, and in response to what we saw last week, uh, with the tohu wabohu, I told you about that. That was uh, the earth was empty or formless and void. Uh, it was em it was without form and it wasn't full. Okay, it was formless and empty. All right, that's this Hebrew phrase. We were told that the earth was in the beginning without form and void, and thus here God adds form and filling. Do you see the symmetry? So verses one and two, the earth was without form and void. So verses three to thirty-one. God is going to add form and he's going to fill his perfect creation. And this is what is displayed in perfect narrative symmetry. What we see then is God designed the narrative to showcase the correspondence between the days. And I just read the first three days for you, probably in Sunday school at some point in time, or if you went through Kids for Truth growing up here at Crossroad, you learned all six days of creation and you're able to tell me what happened on each day and maybe you learned hand signals for it or you have uh, hand-drawn pictures in your mind uh, as to what God made on each day. But we noted on day four and day one, there's a correspondence. We could have flipped those, but I'm highlighting the correspondence. Day four and day one, symmetry. Okay, day five and day two, symmetry. Day six and day three, they relate to each other in perfect harmony as well. And so uh, you say, well, how do they relate to each other in perfect harmony? That's a great question. Very intuitive of you to ask that question. I'm glad you did that. Well, let me share with you how. Well, on day one, we find that God created light. And on day four, God creates 
the sun and moon to radiate the light that he'd already created. You see the symmetry. God creates light, and then he creates bodies to reflect and radiate that light. But wait, for uh, day three, what happens at the end of day three? Plant life. Plant life begins to fill the earth in preparation for his chief creation, day six, to showcase and live among that plant life. So, by the way, if it weren't real 24-hour days, how could plant life survive long ages without a sun or a moon? And the answer is, of course, it couldn't. And thus, we have the practical reality of six 24-hour periods. And we also have the practical narrative reality that God sovereignly rules his creation and thus we and all of creation are accountable to him paul put it this way that the creation from the beginning to now groans with birth pangs waiting to be renewed why because man brought sin into the world and death by sin so death passed upon all men for all have sinned and creation is being consumed by the principle of sin as well and so we find then on uh day five Day five, God filled the waters above and below with birds and fish. When on day two, he created the expanse, separating waters above and waters below. He created the heavens or the sky, the atmosphere, the blue that we see around us. Aren't you so glad you live in Arizona where 320 something days a year you see blue? And I know for some of you Washingtonians, you struggled with that for many, many years. But thank you. Thanks for coming and retiring to the blue state of Arizona, where we enjoy sunshine and smiles all the time. And uh, I have a friend who's from the UP of Michigan, and he said, you know, for eight months out of the year, it is just gray all the time uh, because of the uh, lake effect. And so anyway, as we as we look here also on as we see this also on uh, day six, we see that God filled the land with plant and animal life and created man to exercise dominion over it. All when on day three, God established a separation between water and dry land. So even the phrases God said, and it was good, or uh, God said, and it was so, those two phrases, it was so, it was good, are balanced equally over the days of creation. I don't know if you saw that. If you're a Bible, if you mark in your Bible and you mark those phrases, you'll see there's a perfect symmetry in the narrative structure that shows God's sovereignty. And listen, when God tells a story and he shows symmetry, we're to pay attention because it showcases his care and love for us to understand his truth and it makes us accountable to him. So God is completely sovereign and he has the right to rule in way of some application. God's absolute sovereignty and his right to rule his creation cannot be understated, and it is indeed highlighted in the narrative symmetry. I hope you've seen that just in, in this brief little discussion, and I, um, trust me, I'm giving you about 25 hours worth of study pared down to a few minutes of conversation, okay? Uh, similarly, uh, so as we think about that, what does that mean for you today? So if you're sitting there and you're saying, okay, preacher, narrative symmetry showcases God's sovereignty and highlights his right to rule and it makes me accountable, so what? And of course, that so what isn't an inappropriate so what. You're not being disrespectful. You're asking me to answer the question, what is this there for? And that's a wonderful hermeneutical tool that you've done, and I appreciate that. And so as we think of the so what, let's ask and answer that question, what does this mean for me today? Well, it means that God took incredible care in creating the universe, and it reveals, he reveals to us the same care that he's taking in sustaining it today. It shows that you and I are incredibly valuable and incredibly important to God. Why? Because he cares for you and every detail of your life. Look, if God spent the time to narratively, symmetrically relate to Moses, how he created the heavens and the earth, and then he is going to symmetrically zoom in on the special creation of day six of Adam and his partner, who he is his equal in every respect, whom he created to, to be his companion, then friends, God cares for you, and he cares for every detail in your life. I'm looking around at an auditorium and, and the blessing of pastoring here for many years and the privilege, and I do mean that, and honor it is to be your shepherd. I know most of your stories. 
Some of you I don't know as well as others. Some of you I'd like to know better, and I'd love to hear more of your story. But I can, as I look around the room, I think of God's intimate care of each and every one of you. As he's crafted every detail of your life. And though you might feel uh, at times overwhelmed by the chaos of the world around you. Now, I'm thinking of, of the Sterlings here as they spent 23 years of their lives. I mean, Becca, pretty much most of her life in Siberia and Russia, they're polyglots. They speak multiple languages, and David would deny it, but they do. And the truth of the matter is, friends, right now they're in transition. Where is God going to use us now? Where's the next place God has for us? And, and, the, and the chaos that surrounds all those thoughts and those decisions, and America's a big country, and they've traveled around it quite a bit. And yet, I promise you, as we listen to God's direction in their life and we hear from mom all the special things that God is doing, we are going to see God's loving hand of direction as he guides them to the next ministry and the next soul that needs to be saved and the next opportunity to serve him. And I could go around with each and every one of you, and I look back at my life when God saved me out of a Catholic family and brought us to different churches where I learned different things about God and his word, and the gospel became real to me as an eight-year-old boy, and God reached out and touched me through the word, convicted me of sin through the power of the Holy Spirit, and presented to me Jesus whom I had just known about intellectually. But at that moment, on a Wednesday night in September in 1987, God reached down and helped me to see my need of Jesus Christ. And I'll never forget that night when I called on Christ to save me. And he did. He saved me. He transformed me from death to life. He adopted me into his family. He gave me the benefits of being his child. And I will forever be in heaven in a room in his home. I don't deserve that, friend. Maybe you share that testimony too. I look back on his providential direction in my life and the passions that he gave me and the, and the sports uh, emphasis in my life and the, and the musical emphasis and, and how God orchestrated all kinds of, of decisions that needed to be made. As a 15-year-old, I told God at a Christian camp that I would be willing to serve him anywhere doing anything. Never at all occurred to me that it would be in the ministry. I actually assumed that I would go into, into medicine. That was something that was very interesting to me in the sciences. And then as a 17-year-old, when God called me into the ministry was simply a surrender. I didn't know that I was going to be in the ministry. I wasn't, I didn't know what the path would be, but I remember the, the evangelist simply saying, is there a young man in here, Ezekiel twenty-two thirty, who will stand in the gap for God, not run, not walk, not stream, not preach, not be the greatest warrior, but just be a brick in a wall. Will you stand in the hole in the wall to stop the onslaught of the enemy and protect my people? And I said, God, I don't know what I can do, but I'll stand. Didn't think I would be able to preach. Believe it or not, I didn't like this whole public display. You know, it's, you think your pastor likes to be up here with all the lights on him and all of you looking at him, but this is not my first choice. And yet God said, go, and I did. And friends, God orchestrates every aspect of your life, and God cares for you. There isn't a moment of your life that he wasn't there. There isn't a time in your life that he didn't care. And maybe your mind is flooding with the times of pain and suffering and sorrow and the difficulty. Uh, maybe it's the verbal abuse or the physical abuse. Maybe it was the cruelty of school life in elementary and junior high. Maybe it was the challenge of a physical uh, um, malady or an ailment or a medical issue. Friend, I know that your mind is rushing to those times where you felt alone. You felt empty. But I am telling you, through God's clearly revealed word, he promises to never leave or forsake you. I am telling you by God's clearly revealed word that the just judge will gather the living and the dead before a great white throne and every single wrong will be righted. Every hurt, every pain, every cruelty that you've experienced, Jesus knows. He's written it down in the books and they will stand before mighty Jesus.
and give an account. Oh, friend, don't let your life be consumed with bitterness for revenge. God is the avenger of his people. And he loves you. He's got a plan for you. He sovereignly rules, but you are accountable to him. That is the beauty of this narrative symmetry of Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 to 13. God, in describing his great creation, has showcased to you that he cares for you, friend. Let's look at the second truth that showcases God's sovereign rule uh, in this narrative structure. Not just the narrative structure, but there is a numerical harmony, a numerical harmony that displays God's sovereignty. Say, okay, we're getting into numerology. He's going to roll out the Torah scroll and start doing crossword searches, right? No, no, no. I, I have seen those, trust me. And you can get on YouTube and watch a bunch of crazy heretical stuff on these kinds of things. I promise you, God did not have some secret hidden message that only the wise and noble can find uh, through crossword search in the Hebrew Torah, okay? He wrote it in plain human language, and he expects us to understand it in the same way we normally understand speech, okay? But here in the text, not even hidden, right in plain sight, not only is the narrative symmetry pointing to his sovereign rule and our accountability, but the numerical harmony displays his sovereign rule and our accountability. And of course, you say again, well, pastor, how does it show that? That's a great question. Let's take a look. So there's a renowned, a renowned professor of Hebrew named Umberto Casuto, and I am going to tell you exactly what he says because he knows Hebrew way better than I do. Okay, uh, but as I read through uh, this this passage over and over again over the last couple of months as I've been reading it, I personally uh, have a flow chart and circled all of these comparatives. And as I sat down and I found uh, this man's commentary, I looked at it, I thought, wow, he nicely, concisely put it. I wish I had seen his commentary first. I spent hours and hours doing this on my own. And so here's what he says. The work of the creator, which is marked by absolute perfection and flawless systematic orderliness, is distributed over seven days. Six days of labor and a seventh day set aside for the enjoyment of the completed task. And so as we think about what he's going to say, think about seven days, six days of labor, and one day to enjoy the completed task, a day of rest. Now, listen further to the text. Uh, the words God, which we've already defined in the beginning, Elohim, God. And I already told you that El singular, Elohim is the plural ending. So Elohim is God in plural form. We don't translate it plural because we know in that context of Genesis 1, 1, and 2, and in chapters 2 and 3, God the Holy Spirit, God the Father, and God the Son in triune form are present in verse 26 of chapter 1, let us make man in our image. In chapter 2, and God forms and fashions with his hands. Who would have done that when God is spirit and those worship him in spirit and truth? It would have been the probably the pre-incarnate Christ who was given a body before the foundations of the world, who would be born in the future uh, to die for the sins of mankind in the fullness of time. So Christ in his pre-incarnate form would have shaped and fashioned Adam and Eve. We're already told in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, uh, and the word was with God, the word was God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And so Jesus, the word, breathes into Adam and Eve the breath of life. So God in his triune state exists in the beginning and creates everything out of nothing. And so the word Elohim, plural form, and then the word uh, Zamatin, heavens, uh, and the word Eretz, which is earth. So these three words are three nouns in the opening verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So looking at these three words, they are repeated in this creation account in multiples of seven. Interesting. God, who is a triune God, puts three words in the text that are, that are repeated in multiples of seven throughout. You say, oh, really? Where? Well, God occurs 35 times. That's five times seven. Heavens, 21 times. That's three times seven. And earth, 21 times three times seven. So God in his 
beautiful control and mastery of sovereign rule over his creation, uh, 35 times God declares the heavens, uh, God himself speaks, and the heavens and the earth, 21 times heavens and earth, perfect symmetry, perfect numerical harmony. God, who is the perfecter of all things, who uh, the number of completion seven, who labored for six days and on the seventh day rested in his numerical symmetry or his numerical harmony showcases his sovereignty. Now, in addition to this, in the Hebrew original, this is this geeked me out as I counted this. I, I did look at the original Hebrew. My, I actually had to translate this, this whole, the first three chapters of, of Genesis in Hebrew when I was learning Hebrew years ago, and it was an awful translation. Hebrew is not my strong suit, but I thank God for the technology and the tools of people that, that can say this, but you will see this in the original. In the Hebrew original, the first verse has, guess what? Seven words. And the second verse has, guess what? 14 words. The seventh paragraph, that would be on the seventh day. The seventh paragraph of the narrative discusses the seventh day. Guess what? It has three sentences, each of which has seven words and contains in the middle of the phrase, the seventh day. Now, God, not only in narrative symmetry, but in numerical harmony, presents to us his sovereignty in the beautiful Hebrew prose to showcase that he rules. God does nothing by accident, friends. None of this was by happenstance. It is not as if a, a, a somehow a grouping of cosmic dust was sucked into a black hole vortex, collided together at the speed of who knows what, and exploded into a massive eruption of chaotic boom then spread itself over the vast cosmos and congealed over billions and billions of years into spinning stars that became places that would be wonderful for planets to form. And then the planets formed and somehow water from asteroids landed on them and the water brought space microbes, which then developed into a pool of goo to you. No, God made everything out of nothing in six literal days. And so he showcases not just in narrative symmetry, but in numerical harmony. God, the triune God, uses three words seven times. And in the seventh paragraph, uh, in the first two, first two verses, seven words, 14 words. And the seventh paragraph, three words, seven more times, with the seventh day being the middle. There's a lot of harmony going on here, okay? So Kasuto concludes, or I should say Kasuto concludes, this numerical symmetry is as it were the golden thread that binds together all the parts of the section and serves as a convincing proof of its unity. Does that surprise you? That the God of all glory would unify through his word and showcase his sovereignty and his right to rule all the things he made? And friends, would that in turn then apply to us in the means that you and I must be accountable to him? You say masterfully as you've been thinking here and sitting on the edge of your seat, waiting with bated breath for pastor to say the next thing, which I know you're all doing. So what, pastor? Great question. So God is a God of order and not chaos. God reveals something about his character and attention to detail in this numerical uh, harmony, which highlights his absolute sovereignty and his right to rule his creation. So what does that mean for us today? It means that God is a God of purpose and not chance. It means, friend, that he cares about your life and he is weaving a perfectly harmonized tapestry from seeming chaos around you. And when it seems you're all alone, even abandoned, that is a lie of the enemy. You are not alone. You've never been abandoned. I love that poem, Footprints in the Sand. Love it. And there have admittedly, to my chagrin, been times in my life where I've questioned, where are you, God? I look back and I only see one set of footprints. And by the mercy and grace of God, he says, my child, I was carrying you. You didn't feel my presence? 
You didn't sense my love? What's wrong with you? And why? It's because I was listening to the lie of the enemy. I was listening to the lie from within. I was allowing myself to be consumed on the horizontal circumstances that were impossible for me to overcome. Yet with God, all things are possible. And so, friends, don't be deceived by your lack of perspective. God never leaves or forsakes his own. And to the rest of the human race, he is calling them to faith and repentance today. Don't be deceived by this lack of perspective. Listen to the powerful words, and I don't have a slide for it this morning, but if you want to turn there, I'd encourage you to do so. Listen to the powerful words of Romans chapter 8, a familiar passage, verses 28 to 39. I'm going to read the whole of it, okay? But I want you to listen to these words. These are words to God's people. That's us, those of us who know Christ as our personal Savior. Listen to what he says. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the images of his son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. He's placed us. He's declared us to be righteous, and then he's placed us in the heavenly places as positionally we're already there. What then shall we say to these things? What things? The things that are floating around in our brain, the lies of the enemy that say, you don't matter. Your life isn't valuable. What you do with your time doesn't matter. God isn't watching. You're not accountable. Live for the morrow. Live for the day. Do whatever you want. Live however you want. That, friend, is a lie. No, God's sovereign rule means we're accountable to him. Now listen to the rest of the text. What, shall we th what then shall we say to the th these things? If God is for us, verse 31, who can be against us? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And the answer to that is a resounding, he will give us all things. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Wow. Wow, who am I to stand against God? Who is God's enemy to stand against me? Who is in Christ? Who am in Christ? Who are in, I don't know. Whichever grammatical thing that's supposed to be. I don't even have the excuse of being a polyglot. I just can't speak English. Right? B, that's it. So verse 33, who shall bring a charge against his elect? As we look at verse 35, then who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now listen to this list. Maybe you can re reflect and resonate with this list. Show tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. Well, some of those we definitely can relate to. Most of us have never been without uh, and totally destitute in wartime, right? And so yet he goes on. As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Not bootstrap theology, Christ theology. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come. So even the future I don't have to worry about. Right? nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now stop and think about the comprehensive statement he just made. Not a single created thing can separate you from the love of God. You know, the greatest created thing is Satan. And we all see our adversary who walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And we understand that he is way greater than us. But greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Oh, friend, don't be discouraged. There is no created thing that can stand before the might and the power of King Jesus. There is no creature in heaven or earth 
No principality or power that will not flee before the great, great white throne. There is no creature that will not be gathered and collected that is against our Christ and against Jesus our Lord that will not be cast into the lake which burns with fire forever and ever. Oh, friend, don't be deceived. Your life matters. God cares about you. And the, the application is clear today. God is weaving a perfect tapestry out of your life, even if you can't see it. Even in the, it's in the middle of the tapestry. And boy, the colors he's chosen, you never would have picked. But when we step back and we see in glory, looking back over our lives, we will see the beautiful picture that God has added to the master tapestry of history as he's been redeeming people by his name for his cause with his blood over history, one life and the other and another and another. God has a plan for your life, friend. Don't believe the lie that the enemy rears to us. And you say, Pastor, I hope this last point is short. Well, I can't say it's short, but we'll be quick. Historically, there's a historical reality that displays God's sovereignty. This is the final point here that then showcases our need to be accountable to him. Historical reality displays God's sovereignty. What do I mean by that? Well, we just read the text, right? We read it at recognizing its Hebrew, poet, uh, Hebrew prose. It has incredible narrative symmetry, just like that door frame stands perfectly level in a perfect world, right? It has awesome uh, numerical harmony. Series of three and sevens repeated over and over again to clearly showcase his defined fingerprint on every aspect, showcasing his right to sovereignly rule and our accountability to him. But historically, there's a reality displayed here. God is the one who made all of this. God created everything by his word, his thought converted to speech, which showcased itself in the physical universe coming into being, God spoke every cell in every creature into existence. Then he formed Adam and Eve with his own hands out of material that he had spoken into existence. And each nucleus of each of the trillions of cells in Adam's body was coded with more information than the 13 volume Encyclopedia Britannica can hold. And that's one nucleus of one cell. And there's trillions of them in your body and mine. You can't tell me that came together by happenstance. That somehow in the primordial pool of goo and amino acids somehow made a lipid bond and turned into a protein and the proteins combined uh, in appropriate way to make an mRNA or an RNA not molecule that would then repeat and replicate itself over and over and put itself together in a DNA strand that would show up into some kind of crude single-celled amoeba that would eventually turn into a multiple single-celled that combined together to produce some kind of lizard creature that would then crawl out of the primordial glue and then crawl, crawl up to a tree that, who knows how the tree got there, because uh, the pool of goo is still there, but he'd crawl up into a tree and then hang from it with a furry tail all of a sudden, and then that furry tail turns him into some kind of primate, like a monkey, then would turn into a human. It took me longer to say that than it did for you to think, what a joke. You know how much faith it takes to believe that? When the historical evidence is right here before us? So day one in verses three to five, we see that God created light before he created the heavenly bodies that would cast and reflect that light into the earth. What does that showcase? God's sovereign rule over every element that we need for life. God, who is light, created the light of the universe and radiated it off of himself for all life to exist even before he created the heavenly bodies to reflect it. Day two in verses six to eight, we see that God created waters, which he divided by an expanse. Day three is divided into two parts. The first part in verses nine and 10 showcase God's final act of forming the earth by separating land and sea. Verses 11 to 13 then transition from, from form to fullness, which we'll talk about next week. God formed the earth, then he fills the earth. And that's an answer to verse two, the earth was formless and empty. So what does he do? He forms it and he fills it. 
and God's forming and filling showcase his sovereignty and his providential ability to rule. And God cares about your life and you are the chief of his creation. And so as we conclude, uh, God created the world over which he sovereignly rules. The created order and arrangement show mankind as the pinnacle of symmetry or as the pinnacle of his creation. The narrative and the numerical symmetry showcase God's sovereignty and dominion. Then the, the narrative shifts to the description of his plan for mankind, not only describe man as important to his plan, but as essential to the rule, to rule the beautiful creation God made for man. We'll talk about that next week. So let's talk about Christ in this context because you're asking me, so what? And so here's the answer, and here's the final application as we draw to a conclusion today, and you've listened so well. First of all, Christ is the light. Because the Bible begins and ends by describing an untainted world that is filled with light but no sun and shows God as the source of light, it was fitting that Jesus called himself the light, saying, I am the light of the world. And he would continue by saying, moreover, uh, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Christ is not only light, but Christ. Uh, oh, let me let me go back. I'm, I'm skipping ahead of myself. In addition, it was an audacious claim here to think that whoever follows Jesus will have the light of life. This was an audacious claim because Jesus spoke these words when he was standing in the temple treasury by a massively extinguished torches that had burned that very night in the ceremony of illuminating the temple. It's in John 8. This was the uh, feast of lights and those feasts of lights had come to an end. They extinguished the, the, the temple torches and all of Israel had been celebrating this feast and Jesus gets up and says, I'm the light of the world. It's no wonder they wanted to force him out of the temple and throw him over the side and stone him to death because he was claiming to be the Shekinah glory of God. Because he is. Amen. And so, which this Shekinah glory that led Israel for 40 years in the wilderness was standing before him, before them. It was a solemn declaration of his divinity as the light of the world. This divine light declaration ultimately identified him with the giver of light in Genesis 1. Indeed, Revelation says this of Jesus. And I quote Revelation 21, 23, and the city, this is the new Jerusalem, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. Christ is the light. Hey, friends, if you've been looking to the world's philosophy for your guide and your light, if Jiminy Cricket's been sitting on your shoulder for 25 years trying to be your conscience, friend, you need the word of God, who is the light of God, to be your guide. The son of God wants to be your savior because he is the sovereign of the universe. Christ is the light. Why don't you let him be your light today? Why don't you cast off the shackles of this diminishing dark world that tries to guide you with its Netflix and Amazon Prime philosophy? Don't let Hollywood tell you who you are. Don't let the world and the culture and the consensus tell you that you fit into one of 72 genders. Declare yourself to be who God made you to be and own the beauty that God created when he created you and accept who he made you to be and learn to love what God made you to be because God's got an incredible plan for you. Jesus is your light. Let him lead you as such. He is also the creator. Jesus, the light was present when creation was spoken into existence. The scriptures are explicit. John's gospel begins, as I mentioned, the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made by him or through him. And without him was not anything made that was made in him was life. And the life was the light of men and the light shined in darkness. Yet they did not comprehend it. That's verse five. You see, nothing was made without Christ. Paul likewise affirms this yet for us, there is one God, the father from whom, whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all are made are, are all things and through whom we exist. First Corinthians 8, 6, I tell, uh, added the italics. All things came at once from God the Father and God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And again, Paul says of Jesus, for by him all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Colossians 1.16 verse 17 goes on to say, and by him all things consist and are held together. And then we hear the 24 elders as they cast their crowns before him in Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, O Lord God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will, they exist and were created. Christ is the creator. Let him create out of the mess of your life and the mess of my life, a beautiful symmetry, a wonderful harmony that will ring to the praise and the glory of his grace. Let him connect to you as your great high priest because he was fashioned as a human just like you. And when your heart strums sorrow, he resonates because he is a man of sorrows and he's acquainted with grief. Oh, friend, let Jesus be your Lord because he is creator. Let Jesus be your guide because he is your light. And finally, Christ brings order. You like that word, didn't you? Finally, I, I can tell. Christ brings order. The grand point is that Christ is the light and Christ is the creator who brings order out of the darkness and the chaos of our lives. If your life, friend, is dark and desolate, if your life is out of control, if there is no light in your life but only darkness and there seems to be no hope, friends, there is hope because Jesus Christ is your hope. Amen. This very one who created the fleeting constellations, who orders the cell, who sustains every atom, came and died on the cross for your sins and for mine. This very creator, this very God of light, he will save you. When you call out in mouth confession, you agree with God about your sin, that it's separating you from him, and you accept his one and only sacrifice, Jesus the Son in repentance and faith, he can bring a genesis to your life. He can give you a new beginning and a new creation because he will make you a new creature in Christ. That is what he came to do. If you've never understood this before, realize that there is hope for you, my friend. There is creation power that can recreate your life. There is eternal life that will turn the midnight of your life into the dawn and the daylight of life and spring. This is our God. He gives form. He reorders life. He will do it for you, my friend. God, the sovereign of the universe, rules. And because he does so, friends, we are accountable to him. Don't waste your life, young person, middle-aged adult, senior saint. God's got a plan for you. He wants you to burn brightly and radiate the glory of Jesus. Will you do so? Will you make your life matter? Will you connect your story to God's heavenly story? Will you rear your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Will you speak love into your grandchildren's lives? Will you one another in each other's lives in such a way as not to bite and backbite and fight and bicker, but rather to edify and bring up so that when people look at Crossroad Baptist Church, they say, hey, wow, that church is a church full of people who love each other. And look how different they are. Look, look where they come from, all kinds of walks of life. And yet they're not fighting and they're not arguing over the color of the carpet. And they're not yelling at each other because, you know, so-and-so, uh, you know, pastor didn't wear a tie on Sunday. I, I usually do wear a tie, but I couldn't find one that matched this shirt this morning. And my wife does not like when I put paisley and stripes together, even though I think paisley is like the best thing that was ever created personally. Um, you know, I'm just saying, I think it's a masterful decoration. Paisley on, on everything, carpet, ties, you know, drapes. Um, notice there won't be any paisley in our house, sadly, but it is what it is, except for if I wear it around my neck. I digress. Listen, friends, God has a plan for you. Yield to him. Be accountable to him. Make your life matter. Father, we thank you. We praise you. As we come before you today, we saw your sovereign control over creation, which showcased our accountability to you. And so because you rule creation, we are accountable to you. And so this 
as we conclude this message today, as we've heard a powerful presentation, both in the uh, 9 a.m. discipleship hour about our prayer life and in our 10 o'clock hour, uh, showcasing the need for souls to be saved in Central Asia. Lord, I was stirred by the thought in a country of 10 million people that only 300,000 of them, only 3% of them would not claim Islam as their religion. A religion of hate, darkness, oppression, a religion that worships a false god that is not the one and true God named Yahweh. Oh God, these men and women are oppressed and they need the light of Jesus. They need their creator. They need hope. And you're sending another couple. Oh God, would you, would you please raise that support? Would you help us at Crossroad to know that our